morning and welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. This evening we're going to be speaking about the attack on academic freedom in this country and particularly the way in which Professor David Miller at Bristol University has been targeted. Professor Miller is a leading world expert on Islamophobia and he is also someone who has done a lot of work around the uh, abuse of, of corporate uh, power and, and uh, drew attention to that as well. Now, he's been targeted by the Israel lobby because he's drawn links between the, uh, the Zionist lobby and Islamophobia. And this is something which he is being punished for. And there's a, an attempt to get him sacked from his position at Bristol University. Uh, there is a fight back, though, and there is a lot of support for David around the country and indeed across the world. And I'm very pleased this evening to be joined by Dr. Deepa Driver, who is a fellow academic and very involved in the campaign to support David Miller. She is a National Objective Committee member of the University and College Union, UCU, and is chair of Camden Momentum and a leading campaigner in support of Julian Assange. And I think there are very clear links to the attacks on freedom of speech and the work that Julian Assange has been involved in, and these attacks on academic freedom and freedom of speech across the piece, really. So let me just bring in Deeper, if I may now, and perhaps if you could just maybe open up Deeper this evening with your thoughts on what this means for academic freedom, these attacks on David Miller. Sure. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me on. Um, firstly, huge solidarity to David, who is obviously coming under a huge amount of personal stress in addition to the um, to the broader um, you know stress in relation to the issue itself. Um, David is a very eminent academic as you mentioned. His work on spin, on propaganda, on narratives is absolutely cutting edge. He's also been involved in writing this fantastic book, Bad News for Labour, along with other co-authors. So he's, he's, he's a world-renowned expert. And in the context of academic freedom, it is very important to recognise that it's, that we are working within a, um, a university sector which has been destroyed by neoliberal capitalism. Essentially, um, academic freedom is about um, the right of academics to further knowledge by giving them the freedom to research, to comment upon, to, to engage in debate and dialogue about a range of issues of their choice, things that interest them, that allow us to understand the world better. And many universities across the sector will tell you that they are very interested in the impact on the real world. And David's work clearly is about understanding the real world. He's a sociologist. And, there is, um, in terms of academic freedom, we also have to recognise that academic freedom also includes the rights of uh, academics to talk about their research, but not just talk about their research, but to also have their own political, personal political affiliations, their own views on things. And so in David's case, what has been done is a concerted, attack by a network of people who are trying to suppress the content of what David's speaking about, because what David's speaking about is not well discussed in the media. And uh, David's work actually shines light into the darkest corners. And it's very important that public debate um, is informed by evidence-based research. And that is why in this context, academic freedom becomes very important because in exercising his freedom to research, to explore, to understand what's going on in the world and in us listening to David to, uh, to disseminate that knowledge, um, the world is becoming a better place um, because we, we are understanding relationships between power, propaganda, and protests, and protest is very topical, especially in Bristol at the moment, given the way in which um, I think the, those in positions of power 
those in positions of control, those who have the right to police us, those who set the terms of the law, are preventing us from talking about the issues that matter. And it is in this context that within the neoliberal academy, the way they do it is either by cutting off sources of funding or putting pressure on your employer to fire you as they're trying to do in David's case, or by smearing you or tarring you. And these are not uh, just one or two people uh, making nasty comments on the internet. These are um, well-resourced, state-sponsored, you know, in the background, um, actors who who uh, who pretend that what they care about is other people's well-being, when actually what they're caring about is their own personal interests or their personal political interests, and they're furthering that through shutting down David's um, research. I hope that kind of uh, no, indeed. I think what is so fairly unique. About the attacks on people like David Miller, but it's not just David Miller, of course, because we know academics from around the world have been targeting people like Norman Finkelstein, Cornel West in the United States, and there are many others as well. And uh, it, it's because it, like you mentioned kind of state sponsorship, and, and we know that the kind of Israel lobby is responsible for these attacks on uh, David Miller and indeed other academics. And it's it's really that is quite unique, isn't it? I don't think, I mean, it's fine for people to advocate uh, and indeed for states to advocate for themselves. But I'm not aware of any other um, sort of lobby group that has sought to, you know, attack academics and, and get them dismissed from their positions. That, that's what's, for me, particularly pernicious about this campaign. What do you say about that, Deepa? Well, I think this campaign is... It's definitely unique. And it, you know, it took me by surprise, personally. Ha having watched the Assange case, I have seen how um, research study into these areas is not really welcomed. And in fact, um, is positively ignored. In fact, a lot of, um, although there are a lot of scholars who um, should be thinking about what's happening in the case of Julian Assange, they the discourse has not been sufficiently nuanced and um, there are only isolated pockets of people. And that's more of a censorship by omission where people don't talk about it. In David's case, um, the attempts at censorship, you're absolutely right in pointing out, are, are pretty um, aggressively being uh, omitted, you know, in the sense that they're trying to get David chucked out of his job, they're trying to discredit his research. Um, I, I've seen this happening in relation to, to some extent, to the academics that, in fact, David is a part of in relation to work they're doing on Syria. But you're right in terms of um, states cutting down on this. I, I'm reluctant to, I, I, I recognize that this is unique and special, but I think, and, and the, What's special about this is the scale and the control that these people exert. But I think you can also see it in some elements of um, neoliberal discourse. And most people assume that it's the same kind of thing, whereas this is much more active, the way in which the suppression takes place. Um, so, so, for example, you know, this... Um, this kind of idolizing of war, the uh, the way in which um, finance is talked about, the way in which um, you know modern capitalism is talked about in very positive terms, or financial innovation is talked about in positive terms, is a manipulation of the discourse in itself. And unfortunately, quite a lot of that is propagated by academics who are being forced into narrow channels where, for example, at the University of Leicester, they've been told that, you know, they're going to get rid of people in the business school, in the management school, who are, um, who are, who are, I mean, this is just a paraphrasing, but who are quite critical scholars. So it's happening in various ways where university management, for example, at 
um, Liverpool are now shutting down life sciences in terms of, you know, saying, okay, we're going to have cutbacks. And that comes from a position where funding is dictated by um, by the people who um, who are in positions of power, whether they are in corporations or whether they are in in other sectors. And you see this in food sciences, you see this across the board. But the active targeting of academics to push them out of their position despite who they to be as their lobby. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and your point about neoliberalism, I think, is well made. And, and I think certainly the uh, military industrial complex kind of uh, benefit from a kind of, a, you know, a, a, a neoliberal approach to kind of arms sales and so on and the kind of huge profits that are made from that. And and certainly they benefit from a um, an unstable Middle East. And, and certainly, uh, you know, Israel is a... Uh, um, big military power, and there is a lot of money to be made, I guess, uh, from that. So that, that is a really important point. But what I think uh, is also significant is the, the number of parliamentarians that are weighing into this debate. And of course, the UCU, your own trade union, was also targeted, wasn't it, a few years ago, and was subject uh, to a uh, uh, quite a substantial court case where there was accusations made of anti-Semitism, and the UCU was given a clean bill of health, won the case, and the uh, the witnesses for the other side were were, were deemed to be unreliable, and uh, they included people like uh, John Mann, the former Labour MP, now the so-called uh, anti-Semitism czar, and the former chair of the so-called Jewish Labour movement, Jeremy Newmark, who, who were both highly criti uh, criticised by the judge. I mean, do, do you remember that case, Deepa? Before my time, Chris, but uh, uh, as in, it was while I was still in the union, but what, not while I was in a. You know, the, the thing, I guess I should admit this because I guess some of your viewers are in similar positions. Quite a lot of uh, my switching on about what happened, um, what, what's happening with the Israel lobby and the anti-Palestinian Islamophobic kind of racism has been partly through the Assange case, but partly through the vilification of Jeremy Corbyn mm. and the, the concerted way in which you and others were targeted in order to, you, Ken Livingston and others were targeted, in order to completely um, undermine everything that he stood for. And I, I remember feeling very upset about um, the fact that, you know, recognizing that if you were an anti-Semite or a fascist or um, an evil uh, whatever, it would not bother you so much. It would not bother Jeremy so much. But the fact that you are lifelong anti-racists makes a big difference to how you how you how you feel about this. And largely, the reason why even supposedly intellectual or academic people like myself, I used to work in industry before and work for the regulators, so I should have been more switched on. But the reason many of us don't know about um, much of this discourse is because. Firstly, um, the mainstream media doesn't talk about it at all, or rather when it talks about it, it's a very uh, stilted conversation, very one-sided, um, very much pushing establishment narratives. But also, um, it feels quite scary to talk about this. I think, um, for example, in, uh, in relation to this campaign to support David, Many academics who signed a letter in support of David's rights to academic freedom were targeted online, harassed by um, by someone calling themselves the Tony Benn University in, and then making quite abusive kind of tweets, tagging in our employers. And I think many people feel very reluctant to talk about Israel-Palestine, to talk about yeah. the conflation of uh, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, to talk about uh, how um, to to say, you know, this isn't this isn't okay. We should be allowed to research this because the immediate presumption is you're somebody who's immoderate, who's not. And in academia, we always um, pride ourselves that oh yeah, we're very critical. We look at both both sides of the picture and. As a result, these kinds of middle of the road answers come out. Unfortunately, when you know when you're when the scale is from 
bad to very bad, if you're middle of the road, you're still pretty bad. Instead, if the debate was more normalized, then you could, you know, um, engage more uh, effectively with it. Do you not think, though, Deepa, the way to normalize the debate is for people to bravely speak out? Because the more people that speak out, the easier it becomes, isn't it? I think so. I think it's about it's about rebalancing the power because what's happening is that very powerful people are telling us what to think, how to think, um, who's whom we can listen to, whom we can talk about, and if we even step out of line, you know, the thought police are are stepping in to tell us how we should how we should be. And the only way you can take back control, and you know, I'm sorry to use this phrase, which has been popularized by Boris, but um, the only way to take back control really is to to stand up to bullies, because you don't deal with a bully by playing to their game or listening to their tune. You you do it by standing up and saying you won't take it anymore. And we've got to do this because once these people who are in so much control find you know one or two people speaking up they're very good at stamping down on them very hard julian assange for example has Mm. been in belmarsh prison for two years now and was in um inside the ecuadorian embassy guarded by police tens of millions of pounds spent on guarding that embassy to ensure that he didn't get medical treatment to ensure that he couldn't make his way out to friendly state to to prevent you know lots of efforts put in by Keir Starmer's CPS to prevent the Swedes from coming in uh, interviewing him. This kind of um, effort is by powerful people to police how we behave, just like they police us in Bristol, in London, yes. Everard Vigil. They police us by putting their foot on your neck. That's yeah. what they're doing to individuals. And the more of us stand up, and this we know on the left, it's only solidarity that works. And we have to stand together to say, no, we won't take this because this is about our lives and our right to know what's really going on in the world. I mean, you make a very good point, I think, deeper there, uh, drawing the parallel with Julian, because he was isolated. He was left on his own. And yes, he got a lot of support from, from grassroots activists, but... People like myself, when I was targeted, and people like Ken Livingston and others, high-profile people did not speak out. I was really disappointed, I've got to say, by the lack of solidarity from the socialist campaign group. And, and it must have been incredibly hurtful for Julian to be in a situation where fellow journalists have just sat on their hands and not said anything, with the notable exceptions of, obviously, people like um, uh, John Pilger and, and, and a few other notable exceptions like that. Um, and it's gratifying to see the level of uh, grassroots solidarity. But, you know, I wonder if there'd been, a, you know, an outpouring from fellow journalists as if there had been an outpouring of solidarity from fellow parliamentarians who claim to be socialists, anti-racist, anti-imperialists, whether the outcome might have been different. What do you think? I think it certainly would have been. I think we, ha- we cannot underestimate the power of those who are in very complex networks, who are self-supporting each other and pretending, um, you know, whether in your case, in Jeremy's case, pretending that they are, you know, independent actors, but they're all well-networked, highly well-resourced, and unwilling to let anybody who um, strays from that narrow path of the acceptable narrative to even be heard. So... Yes, you're absolutely right. If this, if the socialist campaign group, uh, and and you know you're you're right, and like me, I'm ashamed of the Labour Party in the way it behaves right now. You know, in in when they choose to abstain on the spike cops bill, when they choose to sit on their hands while this you know protest bill is going through, and then you know suddenly at the last moment they're all over Twitter saying, "Oh yeah, of course we were going to say something about it," and all this while they'd all been sitting tight and not saying anything. Similarly, when you were vilified, when Ken was vilified, when Jeremy was vilified, all of them saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we we support Jeremy, but we won't put our names to anything. And it's, you know, the the very idea that their response to most of these things is just a strongly worded letter, if at all, is just absolutely appalling. Mm. 
we should. Well, I, I've said deeper that solidarity only counts really when it's difficult, not just when it's easy. But let's just to play a quick video, if I can, because the it's interesting the 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 connection with the Israel lobby uh, of the parliamentarians who have signed the letter condemning. Uh, uh, David Miller. Many of them have received substantial payments. Now, the David Miller support, uh, substantial payments, that is, from the Israel lobby. Uh, David Miller, uh, David Miller's uh, cam uh, support campaign team have put together this video, which sort of highlights the uh, uh, the way in which, you know, the, these, these people are compromised, but the mainstream media don't seem to tell anything about them. But let's just play the video and, and people can make their own mind. Can you imagine, Deeper, back in the day when there was still apartheid in South Africa, that uh, parliamentarians who were on the South African lobby payroll would uh, and spoke out against criticism of South Africa? That you know they just simply wouldn't have been allowed, wouldn't have been allowed to get away with it. And yet, this goes on. Where when I was a member of Parliament, I think half the members of the Parliamentary Labour Party were in the Labour Friends of Israel. Uh, th that compromises our democratic structure, doesn't it? Um, I think the very existence of lobby groups, whether they're related to people, lobby, you know, there will always be people associated with um, various causes no matter what that is of course but there is a there are two things that we need one is transparency in terms of who they are and what they are associated with and what kinds of freebies they're getting what kind of junkets they're going on what kinds of payments they're getting what kind of corporations they're working for whom those corporations are connected with but we also in addition to that transparency because you know like right now for example Declassified UK or the Electronic Intifada, Asa and Stanley's um, writing, Matt Kennard's writing, Mark Curtis's writing, Craig Murray's writing, uh, John Pilger's writing. Some of us are reading these people. But what we lack is the power to do anything about it. So, in addition to the transparency, we need institutional arrangements where grassroots, ordinary people like me and you. Well, not you, because you were a former MP in some ways, but, you know, 
um, have a way to in, to to respond to some of the issues that we're seeing in society. Instead, what is happening, especially through, you know, with this hugely corrupt and racist Tory government, is that ordinary people's voices are being silenced and backroom deals are being had. They, these, even when we find out, whether through Byline Times or through um, research coming out of We Own It or research coming out of the Good Law Project, we find out about this, but we're not able to do anything. So there's a need for transparency, but there's also a need for power, for us to have institutions and mechanisms to redress the power balance where these people in positions of control are able to do everything they want and get away with it because they define the law. They tell us what's legal and illegal. And a good example of this is in relation to the spy cops bill, right? Police, uh, policemen and women, um, are going to be able, and um, agents of the state, are going to be able to do illegal things. They're going to be able to kill, they're going to be able to rape, they're going to be able to destroy people's personal relationships, and they're going to be able to do this legally. This is a complete, you know, it's, it's the overturning of, they say this is the law now. And then what we do in terms of protest, whether it is in terms of the protests in London or in Bristol or elsewhere, is termed illegal. And, you, you know, they're using very, very well-known well positive motives, whether it is the protection of women or whether it is avoiding COVID or whether it is the protection of ethnic minorities or whether it's anti-racism, to suppress any attempts to hold them to account. And that's where, um, you know, we have, we have to reclaim the power and we have to really seriously, um, and I use the word punish, but it's a very crude word, really seriously hold to account people like Piti Patel, Boris Johnson, uh, Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak, who are do David Cameron, who are doing extremely illegal things destroying countries around the world. Blair is going around, gracing every stage, at, you know, running an institute, behaving as though he's an envoy for Middle Eastern affairs. How is this possible when he's took us all into an illegal war? And the fact that um, the left won't come together to stand by, to stand in solidarity, is what's causing this. We have to, you know, kick out the Starmers and the Nandis and the Angela Rayners of this world. And we have to get the Rebecca Long Baileys and others to, to stop saying things which are, um, you know, to say, I am a Zionist or, or who was it? One of them said that at the hustings. This is just, just in order to get a vote. This is ridiculous. They need to recognize that, um, you know, we will hold them to account at the next election. It's a shame we lost 2017 and 2019 and largely undermined by the people with, within the machinery of the Labour Party. You're muted, Chris. There's any hope now for us to, uh, to redeem the Parliamentary Labour Party. So I think the I think there is a, a substantial appetite on the left, actually, to to come together. We just got to find ways of of doing that. But just on your on your uh, on some of the points that you were that you were making there, uh, Deepa, I just wondered if you could maybe you know comment on that because people like David are shining a light on some of these areas, which is obviously one of the reasons why he's being targeted. Um, what, 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 you know, as a fellow academic, I mean, how, how does this impact, do you think, on students? Sorry, I was trying to unmute myself. Um, I think one of the things that we have to recognise is that university is a place not just for students to learn in lectures, but also to learn outside of lectures, talk to each other, engage with things and it's very hard for them to do that right now with all the COVID restrictions and with the way in which they are constantly being surveilled in terms of their interactions. So courses like David's course, which looks at the harms of the powerful, the crimes of the powerful, which 
challenges real evils like Islamophobia um, are hugely important to, um, to allowing students to understand what's really going on in the world. And in, you know, a lot of the relationship between staff and students is now treated as some kind of uh, high-end delivery where all students do is rate staff on satisfaction scores based on, um, sorry, there's a sound in the background. Um, and, in, and this consumer-producer relationship, which is taking place because of the way in which universities are funded, UCU absolutely opposes student fees, is what is creating a context where um, universities are so desperate for funding from various sources that they are not concerned about their primary purpose around education. What they are concerned about is about how they make money, how they enrich middle managers, how those middle managers then enrich their cronies in the big consulting firms who come and give you some some advice which you could have found within your institution itself and then destroy the institution and pretend that all this is for the interests of students. And quite a lot of the time, the ways in which managers express their express our relationship with students creates expectations amongst um, our students that that we will behave with them in the same way as um, um, somebody delivering a meal or whatever else is is being delivered is being rated and it shouldn't they shouldn't be rated either and what we find is when we step away from this when you know in my classrooms for example I try very hard to talk to my students about what's really going on in the world and when most of the time when people do this, um, they're doing this at great risk to themselves. So I think there is a, a degree of self-censorship that then takes place, which then makes university not a place where people get educated, not a place where you expand your horizons and understand different ways of looking at the world and, and make up your own mind about what's going on. Instead, you are told... This is what you learn. And then you're told, oh, yeah, you've been given lots of freedom. And it's a complete and utter nonsense. Does that, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, I mean, just, just on that point, really, I'm moving on slightly to Gavin Williamson, who claims to champion freedom of speech and saying crucially important on university campuses. And at the same time, is insisting that all universities adopt the international Holocaust Remembrance Work Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which is a discredited working de definition. Even Kenneth Stern, who, who authored the original script, said it's not really fit for purpose. There's a real contradiction there, isn't there, between what Gavin Williamson is saying on the one hand and then what he's saying on the other. The two things are, are contradictory, aren't they? Freedom of speech and, and, and insistence upon the adoption and implementation of the IHRA. I think I'm very I think I'm very proud of my union that we have absolutely and clearly and unequivocally opposed the IHRA definition and its implementation activities. But many universities, um, because they're reliant on um, either government funding or their relationships with people in government and the way in which um, you know, the current Tory government talks to our universities, puts people who are in charge of universities who are only motivated, I mean, many of whom have only got to their senior positions because they have self-censored or they have bought into this narrative. You know, they don't see anything, uh, they don't see themselves as having a spine and standing up to the imposition of such kinds of um hugely flawed definitions upon the sector and I'm particularly proud of um, my colleagues at University College London who's who convened whose university tried to impose this definition whose academic body came together to say no we do not accept the Ahitari, um approach to this and it, it in many other universities where union branches are fighting, you know, at my university, for example, where um, or at other universities where there are efforts to do fire and rehire 
where universities are um, doing things where, you know, where they're employing, you know, Oxford and Cambridge, over 70% of their staff um, in, in certain functions are in, are in casualized contracts. This is people who don't know from term to term whether they will have a job. Sometimes you're employed for a matter of weeks, sometimes you're hourly paid. The exercise of academic freedom when you're in this kind of position is very, very hard. You, if you are a senior professor within a, an institution where you have some stability, you might be able to say something. But if you're further down the hierarchy and you are dependent upon some middle manager who is judging you based on what money you bring in, then it's very difficult to, to do what you're really supposed to do, which is to educate students and to do proper research, or indeed to uh, many of our professional and academic related staff do very, very important jobs behind the scenes. And quite a lot of them are stamped upon on a regular basis by a system where they are seen as cogs in the wheel rather than as part of a sector that is that could be really important and really liberating for many of our young people and for 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 our society that could contribute at times of crisis, whether it is COVID or whether it is um, other crises that we see. Things I mean, seem very, very different uh, now, certainly to when I was a young man. I, mean, I didn't, didn't go to university. I went into the building trade and uh, became a mature student and went to a, a polytechnic. But it, it did seem a, a more... Um, you know, liberating sort of environment, really, at uh, university. And, well, it was polytechnic where, where, where I went. Uh, but but nevertheless, um, it seems, it seems I, I get a feel it's, it's, quite, it's quite different now. I mean, so what do you think the future holds, uh, Deeper, in terms of, um, you know, academic freedom, these attacks on David, that the kind of read across to how it, you know, the attacks on Julian Assange, the repressive legislation that the government's bringing in you touched upon the um you know the 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 uh, the, the, the spy the, the spy cops bill the um is it covert human intelligence sources bill which gives the police the right to, on the face of the bill to commit uh, criminal conduct up to and including rape torture and and murder and then of course we saw these uh, horrendous scenes uh in in bristol with 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 the police attacking the protesters and interestingly the corporate media portraying it as the other way around, just as we've seen in the past at Hillsborough, at the, uh, the Orgreave, uh, where the BBC switched the footage around and showed the, the miners attacking the police, when in reality they were trying to defend themselves from attacks by the police. Um, it, it seems to be a perfect storm. Things seem to be really getting out of hand. I mean, are you hopeful about the future? What, what, what's your prediction for the, for, the, for the situation this time next year, Deepa? Um, can I start where you started this question, where you were talking about um, you know, going to poly? And men, UCU is not just a, a, a trade union for those who are at universities. We have colleagues in prison education, um, in areas of further education, including um, colleges and uh, sixth form colleges, and also um, adult and community education. And whether it is in FE or that's further education or HE, which is the university sector, the problems are similar. It is the problems of neoliberal capitalism where, um, where ev everything is being measured and they are measuring, and, and it only counts and things only matter if they are measured. And many of the unmeasured things, which is what um, much of what is important in life is about, um, are not taken into account. And, and, and despite all of this, you know, I think our, not just my uh, UCU members, but people across the sector are doing huge amounts of things, which are, uh, if you look at young people now, many of them are so much more politically savvy than I was when I was 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, and I'm, I'm quite hopeful about the future because I, I think that uh, if you stand down on one Julian Assange, there will be another 20 Julian Assange's around the world who will come up. If you stamp down on one Chelsea Manning or one David Miller, there will be a lot of others because I would not have known to, um, well, I would not have spoken up as much perhaps about um, anti-Palestinian racism or about the kinds of issues that uh, Julian has is exposed. And had I not heard 
what they had to say. And Julian himself was, for example, in, influenced by Gavin McFadden and his um, his interest in whistleblowing and whistleblowers. So firstly, I think I'm quite positive about the outlook for the future. I think that um, more and more people, especially as a result of the kind of repressive measures we've seen during COVID, repressive measures we've seen at protests, um, repressive measures we saw which gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement, the death, the murder of George Floyd, have begun to realize that things are not exactly what they seem. They're beginning to uh, recognize that much of what is around them is spin and propaganda. And, you know, we always, at least when I was growing up, I always thought of propaganda as something that Hitler did or something that was in the Second World War. I didn't realize that it was all around me. And I think more and more people are beginning to realize, which is why we hear uh, comments about fake news, that much of the mainstream media is corrupted, is weak, is, um, and the people who are in these positions where we see them, say, Andrew Marr or others, um, it's fantastic when you hear Noam Chomsky saying to him, well, the reason you're, uh, you think you're not self-censoring, but the reason you're in your position is because you self-censor. And we're all beginning to see that, and we're beginning to cut through their um, BS. So I, I, I do think there is hope for the future, because I think, and I think if you did not think there was hope for the future, you might as well roll over dead. And unless we believe that we can change, whatever, you know, whether it is an influencing a friend, a neighbor, a relative, and getting them to take a stand on issues which may no matter, nothing will change. And in Julian's case, I can tell you this, because when we started off, or when the wonderful people at the campaign to defend Julian Assange, Emmy, Clara, Joe, and um, a number of others whose names I won't mention here, were standing outside the Ecuadorian embassy 10 years ago, or thereabouts, um, talking about the fact that Julian should be free. Many of us who were supposedly the, the, the you know, in teaching at universities, supposedly well-read, etc., didn't realize how badly he was being treated in that embassy, not by the fact that he was being confined in a space where he couldn't even have, in, over time, he lost his peripheral vision, where his osteoporosis got worse, where he cracked a rib trying to tie a shoelace, where he's had a tooth infection, which the, U which the UK government didn't allow permission, despite Ecuador asking for it, for him to go to a hospital to have it uh, fixed, and where he was spied upon by the US state, presumably with the complicity of the British, where uh, laser microphones were pointed at his window, where microphones were placed in the ladies' toilet so he could, even his privileged conversations with his lawyers were spied upon. And, you know, when, when that happens, you begin to realize that people like Julian are actually very powerful people because of what they are revealing. And just like how when they're standing on Julian, he, is ha he had the courage when the US asked him to take off those, um, those pieces of information that the world should, should rightly know about, he said no, and he stood up, and WikiLeaks, this tiny organization, stood up and said no. I th and similarly, what David's doing right now in Bristol, when they're saying to him, you know, get back, we won't let you speak, we'll deprive you of your job. What is he doing? He is doing world-leading, important work, revealing who they are. And the more we see of this, the more of us who speak up, whether through our academic work, whether through our uh, positions in various organizations, whether through our community networks, the more of us who speak up, things will change. And they have to change because they have gotten very bad. We cannot go around killing people in other parts of the world and not expect things to go wrong. Um, you know, because when you degrade other people, it degrades you. Yeah. yeah. Well, the system's, well, the system's completely good. broken now, and uh, you know it's uh, it's significant. I think that the big tech companies are seeking to clamp down 
on the democratization of of the media through through social media and we're seeing progressive voices left-wing voices um people who shine a light on some of these abuses being closed down and being censored and so it's encouraging to see now an alternative uh, platform being created the panquake it's called and they've made substantial progress already and they're hoping to launch by the end of this year before the end of this year and anybody who's watching i definitely recommend that people look out for for panquake if you if you look on your search engine for it and go and support it because the way in which social media did give the that voice to the un, previously unheard is 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 more problematic now more and more you know people are having their platforms closed down and it's really important therefore i think that we do support panquake because it will be a, a genuinely open and democratic platform that will be available for for all of us and so you know we can challenge these big tech companies because they are now acting on the on behalf of uh, predominantly the United States, but, but but you know, but big big corporate uh, interests, as it were. And as for the corporate media, I mean, as uh, Noam Chomsky, who you you quoted there, deeper, uh, famously talked about the manufacturing consent, and you know, we've seen that all the time. We've you know, I mean, we perhaps weren't as aware of it in the past, but you know, I remember things like manufacturing consent for the Falklands War, manufacturing consent for the war in Iraq, manufacturing consent for the war in Afghanistan, manufacturing consent for the uh, support for the abuses of the Israeli state. It's outrageous. And um, those voices that are out there and those platforms that are out there giving a different uh, perspective are increasingly being um, hemmed in. And so it's important, as I say, to come back to the point that we do uh, look to support this this alternative platform that's being created. But I wonder if, uh, if Sean is available now to see what our viewers have been making of the conversation with Deepa and if they've got any comments or questions to put to her. Hi, good evening. Hi, Deepa, how are you? Lovely to see you, Shan. Yes, um, and you. Uh, right, well, we've got, so we've been having a really interesting discussion and we've been trying to dig down deeper into why people are trying to take away our freedoms and our freedom of speech, which has been quite interesting. Um, Jonathan Cooper asked, um, he said, in the context of the bourgeoisie not providing the education, we need to overthrow them. How far should we provide cooperative education ourselves and how do we go about it? Um, I, I think I think Jonathan's right. Uh, is, was it, it was Jonathan, wasn't it? Um, and he is right. We have to work in terms of educating each other. Sometimes this education is formal, and quite a lot of education is is actually informal. Is in relationships, is in talking to people, is in engaging with others, in educating yourself to some extent, trying to look beyond the spin and the narrative to who benefits from certain narratives being popular, and. It's trying to look past the weaponization of various um, identities in some ways and various personal um, needs to or positive ideals, whether it is anti-racism or um, feminism, to look, you know, you people using these positive ideals to actually suppress what a discussion of what really matters to all of us. And I think we have to go back to that. I don't, you know, Andrew Feinstein, um, who was um, served in Nelson Mandela's cabinet um, in South Africa, once said to me, he said, it was just before the end of apartheid that things got really worse. Somebody he knew was thrown off the ninth, the ninth floor of the building. And, you know, the brutality was just horrendous. And when I see what's happening in Britain now, the brutality of children going hungry and this government willing to pay uh, for, you know, uh, trident and willing to pay for all kinds of destructive things, but not willing to pay people a minimum wage, not willing to pay our nurses a fair wage. I just think things have gotten so bad that we have to, you know, educate each other and push out of this because otherwise, you know, we will, we will continue to stay in this kind of intellectual slavery but slavery went on for ages apartheid went on for ages with everybody thinking oh you can't do anything about it it's going to be the way of the world but actually they 
both been stamped on and pushed away. So I think there is a chance for us. Thanks, Deepa. Um, okay, we go to actually John. Um, where is the starting point to flirt around and study all this? Um, reasonably new to it, is Israel the nexus? Do we begin mainly um, uh, there as the core flu for, for influence? So I think what he's saying is he, he doesn't really know about much about the um, subject of of anti-Semitism, how the anti-Semitism smears started, where it's coming from. So um, where could he sort of start his education on that? For David's case in particular, and the kind the, the misuse of anti-Semitism um, type arguments, there is David's support website, which is called supportmiller.org, has a resources section where many of the key questions can be answered. But if you're if you're looking to um, familiarize yourself with what's going on. I think it's a good place to start would be um, writings by John Pilger or um, Declassified UK or Electronic Intifada or some of the um, alternative uh, media outlets like the Canary. So you can get to grips with what's really what's really happening, which, because then that lets you see past the, the nonsense that the mainstream media wants to talk about, which is, you know, it does um, it does make him look good in this dress or otherwise in and instead look at the real issues and um, I think that's I think once you read one thing it then connects you to something else and then connects you to something else I think a good way to learn is also to um, to think about what interests you and go on listen to political speakers for example Chris or others who are talking about the issue Craig Murray for example writes a lot about the Julian Assange case um, WikiLeaks's own website has a lot of information that are, I guess, I, I, I mean, I don't know where you would start from scratch, but uh, there is there is a there is a website on um, called medium.com forward slash elephants in the room elephants with an S, and it's got about fourteen, fifteen, uh, probably around twenty blog, blog short articles which explain in ordinary, easy to use language, what's going on on various topics. So you may want to start from there, John. Uh, so it's medium.com forward slash elephants in the room. And I'm hoping Sean or somebody else will be able to put it into the chat so that people can see. So um, there's a whole range of topics there that might be helpful. Can I just add on to, to, uh, to uh, Deepa's list there, just a couple of other references. Uh, Bad News for Labour, a book that um, <clears throat> that uh, um, David Miller himself contributed to. He wasn't there people like Justin Schlossberg and, and, and others contributed. That, that's worth getting. And, and, and then another writer who is definitely worth uh, looking at is Jonathan Cook. He's a Nazareth-based um, um, uh, journalist writer, uh, very, very knowledgeable on the, on the whole uh, issue of, of, of anti-Semitism and the role of the Israeli state and the the, the abuse of the Palestinian people. So there, there were a couple of others to that comprehensive list that, that Deepa just uh, gave us there. Yeah, and obviously Asa Winstanley's done a lot of investigative reporting, um, particularly on the Israeli lobby. And personally, I would say start with the Al Jazeera documentaries, um, The Lobby in the UK, which was... Um, filmed around the Labour Party conference, and then you've got the, Lab uh, the Lobby US, which uh, concentrates on how the lobby has um, <clears throat> used students with on campuses uh, to astroturf Palestinian um, uh, groups and um, events that's been going on in campuses. They actually pay students to go along to those events, um, and most of the time, the students don't even know why they're there. They're told what to say and what to do. Um, so they're very interesting as well. Okay, so on to our next uh, comment from uh, Stephen Oxbrow. He says, these attacks on academic freedom are means of telling the university business, don't rock the boat or we'll send the money elsewhere. Universities being business is part of the problem. Do you think that that's a problem, deeper? Spot on, Stephen. Absolutely right. The reason universities self-censor so much is because senior, the people in positions of management are not interested in education and learning. Many of them are only interested in 
in lining their pockets or lining the pockets of those whom they are associated with. And that means that they're interested in funding sources, they're interested in, um, in research that has high visibility, but they're not really interested in the subject matter. Many of these people who could be phenomenal teachers, who could be good academics, are instead promoted into managerial positions where they only fail upwards. So the more incompetent you are, the more you get into senior positions of power. And just like with, with uh, modern corporations, which are quite sociopathic and where people at the top are large, you know, in, in many, if you look at any of the big corporations today and uh, any of the big banks, any of the big industries, you can see how much they've done to hold back the work. And the reason they're able to get away with it is because they have this very iron fist and fascist approach to any dissent within the organization. And as a result, problems get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the people who bear the losses are ordinary members of the public, people like you and me. But actually, were we to make corporations, universities more accountable? Universities are all supposedly charities. And their charitable purpose is largely supposed to be education. But they are all running their universities like very badly run businesses. And this is really at the heart of why academic freedom is going down. These badly run businesses hire people on short-term contracts. They treat them badly. They don't give them enough time to do the work. They, don't, uh, they, they create a relationship with students where all they're trying to do is invest in new shiny buildings, which can go on the next brochure, which can then be marketed somewhere else in the world to attract people who don't really know how good or bad the university is. And it is because, and they get more and more into debt. And as they get more and more into debt, they, they need more and more these kinds of dodgy funders, or they're more and more beholden to some of these funders. And as a, that's why they're clamping down on academic freedom. That's how academic freedom gets eroded from people having uh, non-tenured contracts, etc. Got time for one more uh, question or comment briefly, uh, Sean, if there's anything. Yeah, there. um, this was quite an interesting one uh, from Atcha John again, because um, he, he was at, obviously he was asking where does this um, come from? Why is Israel being like this? Why are they trying to clamp down on freedom of speech? Why are they trying to um, create this narrative? Um, so he says um, um, he's aware of the BDS movement. Um, and then he says, but what about Kashmir? What about Yemen? The training of the police by Israel in the UK and the USA and other places. Um, Bolivia, um, before um, they obviously got a socialist government again, Ecuador. It's a form of social intervention by forces to achieve what? What, what is their ultimate goals in all this? Is, is it about Israel? Is it about capitalism, nationalism? What do you think it's about? I think you have to be, you have to recognize that just like in Britain, there is a significant body of people within Israel, um, Jewish or otherwise, who are extremely unhappy with having a, a right-wing government. So just as we recognize that um, you can't pretend that we are all just like Boris, you have to recognize that not everybody in Israel agrees with the way the government behaves and the people who are in positions of power wish to entrench a certain approach to how uh, Israel engages with the world. I, I, I think Chris probably has more to say on this than I do. Well, briefly, in the, in the last sort of 30 uh, seconds, of course, the, the unique situation in relation to Israel is that it's, it was created out of stolen land. It was created out of land that was belonged to the Palestinian people. And uh, three quarters of a million Palestinians were uh, forced out, forced from their homes. And it's still happening to this day. And I think that makes the situation in Israel uh, uh, unique, actually, or the situation in Palestine unique. That's not to say we shouldn't be concerned about these other abuses of human rights around the world. Of course, we should, and we should express solidarity and support for those struggles in, in Kashmir and other places. And indeed, the Resist Movement for a People's Party is very much an internationalist party, and we believe in international solidarity and working in support of and collaboration with the liberation struggles around the world. And indeed, we think there are many lessons that we can learn in this country 
from those liberation struggles and apply those lessons here in Britain. And that's going to be more important, as Deepa's pointed out very eloquently this evening, with the with the uh, way in which uh, the our freedoms are being clamped down upon by this by this government. But we're out of time now. In fact, we, we've gone 30 seconds over time. So thank you very much indeed, Deepa, for your thoughts this evening. Really appreciate that. It's prompted a substantial amount of discussion on the chat. Thank you very much indeed, everyone, for watching this evening. We'll be back next week at the same time on Wednesday, 7 o'clock. So I hope to see you then. In the meantime, thank you for watching this evening and good night. Thank you.